welcome to Tao Capes, the podcast that covers film, television, comics, and games. I'm your host, Cody Nestor. Alongside me is my co-host, Todd Heal. Hey, guys. On today's episode, the long-awaited trailer for Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is here. James Wan confirms a certain actor won't return for the sequel. Werewolf by Night screams into color on Disney Plus this fall. And Donald Glover's Lando is coming back to the big screen. We then wrap up by discussing the future of the DCU. But first, Todd, let's get to the shit that's fit to print. Let's do it. So, Aquaman, Todd, you're aware that DC still intends to release Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, correct? I'm fully aware of that, yes. So, were you secretly hoping Aquaman would get the Batgirl treatment, Todd? Uh, let's be honest here, yeah. <laughs> well, the long-awaited trailer for Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is here. This is via THR. Until this week, observers had wondered when the Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom trailer would debut. The film opens December 20th, and no trailer had materialized until now despite the release date being just over three months away. Trailers for recent DC films The Flash and Blue Beetle debuted around four months before they hit theaters. The film comes in the midst of the SAG after strike, which prevents stars from promoting projects. If the strike is not resolved by December, the film will go out into the world without the benefit of a publicity push from its stars. It's been a long road for The Lost Kingdom. Like many films made in the COVID-19 era, The Lost Kingdom has pushed its release date multiple times. At one point, it was going to open in December 2022. That changed to March 2023, before being pushed to Christmas 2023. The film also spanned three regimes at Warner Brothers and underwent a series of reshoots. We've seen the trailer for Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. What do you think of the trailer, Todd? Uh, Visually, it looks amazing. Uh, I really like the way Black Mana looks in this trailer. Uh, Story, characterization, you know, to be determined, but the visuals looked good. So yeah, we just got done watching the trailer ourselves, and uh, yeah, I agree with you. Visually, it looks stunning. The first one was a was a great visually stunning film. This one looks like it's going to continue that trend. Uh, did you notice we got only one shot of Amber Heard, Todd? I noticed that. Very brief at that. Yeah, let's try to keep her out of the marketing as much as possible. Uh, something they could easily do here with with her character more than they could, say, uh, Ezra Miller in The Flash. True, true. But yeah, I mean, overall, my impressions with the trailer were okay. Like, I'm willing to give it a shot. It's coming at the tail end of the DCEU. It's the last film of this this era and this universe. So we'll see what it has in store for us when it hits uh, theaters uh, this December. Before we move on from Aquaman, though, Todd, did you feel like someone was missing from the trailer? Yeah, who was missing from that? Was it Willem Dafoe? Yeah, yeah. Someone with goblin-like features. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Willem Dafoe. So James Wan confirmed that Willem Dafoe will not return in the sequel. This is via Superhero Hype. Wan spoke to Entertainment Weekly about what's in store for the Atlantean superhero's latest adventure following the release of the first full trailer. While star Jason Momoa and most of the cast, including Patrick Wilson, Nicole Kidman, and Amber Heard from the 2018 movie are back, Dafoe's busy schedule prevented him from playing Arthur Curry's Atlantean mentor. He continued, part of the reason was because his schedule did not work out for us, but what that allowed me to do was expand on Atlana's role. Atlana in this one ultimately becomes Arthur's advisor. Because Arthur's not from this world, she helps him better understand the world and the politics of how things work. So I know you're super bummed about this part, Todd. Yeah, I mean, Willem Dafoe's a great actor. Uh, I thought he did a good job with Volko in that first one, but... We'll see how it works without him. Yeah, I mean, I always enjoy seeing Willem Dafoe in things. It is a little bit of a bummer he's not going to be in this, but I'm sure he's really probably not too broken up about not coming back for Aquaman 2. I bet so, yeah. So, Todd, Marvel's Werewolf by Night is getting a colorful makeover for its return on Disney+. Plus. This is via Collider. 
October is just around the corner, and with that comes a plethora of horror-themed treats for horror fans to look forward to. Now fans can revisit a beloved Halloween special in a way they've never seen before as, according to a report from Bloody Disgusting, Marvel's Werewolf by Night will be receiving a colorful new makeover. The special will return with its new look on Disney Plus on October 20th. Werewolf by Night made its terrifying debut on Disney Plus last year and was well received by fans and critics due to its unique departure from previous MCU projects. One of the most visually strong aspects of the special was its black and white presentation, serving as a fun throwback to the classic Universal Monster films of the 30s and 40s. Now with the short set to be released in full color, it will be interesting to see how much different the tone will be, especially when color was already used sparingly to emphasize the power of the bloodstone. In addition to the color presentation of the special, the original black and white version will also make its debut on Hulu on September 15th. Directed by Michael Giacchino, Werewolf by Night centers on a group of monster hunters who gather at the infamous Bloodstone Temple in an attempt to compete for the powerful relic known as the Bloodstone. However, the hunt takes a drastic turn when it is revealed that one of the hunters, Jack Russell, is secretly a vicious werewolf attempting to rescue a fellow monster from the clutches of the Bloodstones. So I think Werewolf by Night is one of Marvel's best post-endgame releases. Are you interested in revisiting a full-color version of Werewolf by Night, Todd? Well, maybe I'm a little cynical here, but this just seems to me like a Disney rehash to me. It's like, what did we have that worked? Werewolf by Night. How can we throw that back up there? We put it in, in black and white originally. Let's colorize it. I mean, I, I'll probably check it out, I'll be honest with you, because like you said, I think it's one of the better Marvel projects they did, but it just seems like they're kind of just forcing more stuff up the line. Yeah, I can kind of agree with that cynical take. It does seem like a little bit of a kind of a scramble from Disney to say like, yeah, what do we have here? Oh, Werewolf by Night. Let's put it in color and throw it back on Disney Plus, get people excited for the brand, for Marvel again, because it's one of the best things we've done post Endgame. But with that said, I am interested to go back and see how much it does change it to see it in a full color version versus the original black and white. So once it hits on October 20th, I'll probably be there checking it out. I probably will too. All right, on to our last piece of news. It's Star Wars news, Todd. Uh, I mean, yay! So, Todd, I want you to think back all the way to May of 2018, okay? That's a stretch for me, but let's try it. Do you remember when Donald Glover played young Lando Calrissian in Solo, A Star Wars Story? I actually do. So now do you remember leaving the theater and saying, I want more of everything from this film? Uh, I don't remember that. You no. did. I was there. Oh, I did. Okay. Well, if you yeah. said it, I yeah, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, your wish may come true, Todd. So this is via Variety. News broke in July that Donald and Stephen Glover had been tapped by Disney and Lucasfilm to replace Justin Simeon as the writers of a new Lando television series on Disney+, Plus, but not so fast. The project is actually being developed as a Lando movie, Lucasfilm confirmed to Variety, Glover debuted as a young Lando Calrissian in the 2018 Star Wars tentpole Solo, which is a notable box office disappointment for Disney and Lucasfilm. Stephen Glover first dropped the news of a Lando movie on a recent appearance on the Pablo Torre Finds Out podcast, telling the host, it's not even a show, the idea right now is to do a movie. Right now, because of the strike, it's kind of like telephone, all of the information. That's all the info Stephen could provide. Lucasfilm confirmed the news afterwards. News first broke of a Lando Calrissian limited series being in the works in December 2020. At the time, Dear White People creator Justin Simeon was attached to the project. He exited and was replaced by the Glover brothers. 
who are developing it as a movie. Donald Glover revealed in a video interview with GQ magazine in April that he was talking to Lucasfilm about another Lando-centric project in the Star Wars universe. He said, we're talking about it. That's as much as I can say without Kathleen Kennedy hunting me down. So, Todd, looking at the current Star Wars landscape, how do you feel about Lando potentially getting his own film? I mean, look at this point. uh, Star Wars characters getting projects awarded to them is about the same thing as audience members winning stuff on Oprah. You get a miniseries, you get a movie, you get this project. I mean, if it's of quality, if it's well written, if it's well acted, you know, it deserves it. It should be checked out. It's just, if it doesn't, it's just more diluting the brand, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, are we crazy? But I'm just, with Star Wars and with a lot of properties right now, but with Star Wars especially, I'm just, I'm tired of the old I'm tired of the original trilogy at this point. Yeah. I'm tired of the sequel trilogy. I'm tired of the prequel trilogy. I want to see new stuff done within the Star Wars universe. And let's prove that it actually can carry other things besides just Luke, Han, Leia, Lando, Rey now. You know, even stuff like the Mandalorian, some of the other shows have started to fall off a little bit. We're still hearing good things about Ahsoka, and I'm glad that show is doing well and getting positive reviews. But I'm just kind of tired of all the old and then the fact of all these franchises. You can't do anything without having it be attached to the past or somebody from the past showing up. Like, have we run out of new ideas? Yeah, probably. But I mean, am I crazy? <laughs> No, it's like they're they're afraid to move forward. They're afraid if they don't connect it to the past somehow, they're not going to find their audience. And I think they'll find if they try it, they're going to find that audience and maybe a new audience, but they're just unwilling to do it for some reason. Yeah, I mean, look at The Mandalorian Season 1. That was kind of its own thing. I mean, you had you know Baby Yoda, Grogu, you know. You had that, which was an element, element tied sort of to a past character or a race of characters, but... It was kind of functioning as its own thing, but then as it went on, you got Boba Fett involved. He got his own show. That wasn't received well. All this, you bring back Luke Skywalker at the end of season two. It started to go downhill more when you went back instead of forward with the narrative that you were telling. And they just are unwilling to see this. I mean, they they can see the returns, you would think, but they just keep doing it. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I mean, I feel the same way about a Lando movie. If it's good, if it's of a certain quality level, I'll see it. I love Donald Glover. I think he's great. Hope one day maybe we can see him involved with the MCU and that uh, Prowler and or Miles Morales type situation oh, that they've yeah, been yeah. teasing for a long time. But like I said, for this, I'm willing to give it a chance. But I think I don't think it's the direction for this to get a film or for some of the other projects we're seeing come out of this. I don't think it's the right direction for Star Wars, but what do I know? (laughs) So, Todd, with the rise of the new DCU, today we're going to talk about the fall of the DCEU. The DCEU began with 2013's Man of Steel and is set to conclude with 2023's Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Across the films released so far, the DCEU has grossed over $6 billion at the worldwide box office, Todd. And when you told me that earlier, I was actually shocked. I didn't know it was that high. Yeah, with some of the films released, it's really hard to believe, is hey, You're right. You're exactly right. So, Todd, I'm going to start off with an easy question for you. Oh, God. Very easy question. Okay. <laughs> with the DCEU's end in sight, what do you think led to its downfall? Very easy question. Very, Very easy simple. Question. No pressure. No pressure. Okay, so here's, here's what I think happened. Uh, 
if you build in any kind of cinematic universe, any kind of anything, basically, you need to have a strong foundation. And the foundation for this cinematic universe was Man of Steel. And for better or worse, Man of Steel was a very divisive movie. Uh, I think the characterization of the character of Superman uh, fell short of the mark here. And everything just kind of snowballed out of it. Yeah, 100% agreed. I think if I boil it down to what killed, quote unquote, the DCEU in one word, it's characterization. And it starts right out of the gate with Man of Steel. Man of Steel was divisive, as you say. It kind of came off the back of the Nolan trilogy. You know, it kind of was developed out of that. It was a supposed to be a more grounded and real take for a Superman movie. And while that's fine as a direction, I just don't think it worked here, or at least it missed the mark with Zack Snyder being brought on board for it. I don't think, if you look at it, it's kind of like, I was thinking about it last night, you know, if you look at Man of Steel, it's supposed to be kind of this grounded, kind of realistic take on Superman, right? But then right out of the gate, you open with like the craziest Krypton you'll ever see. Right, right. The, the Krypton of like, 1978 Superman the movie is more grounded and realistic if you want to say that uh, for that type of movie than what you get in Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. I mean, you've got flying creatures, you've got all this stuff going on. So like it's tonally kind of inconsistent because it wants to be like kind of dark and dour and kind of brooding. But then you have all these like big fantastical elements that don't fit for a Nolan-esque type film. Right, right. True. But Really, if you get past that, the first thing or the the biggest thing that that hurt Man of Steel for me is the characterization of Superman. I just don't think it was a good take on the character. It hits too much of it's too uh, dour. It's too like kind of like contemplative. Like it just it really goes into that that gray area. And he was characterized more like Batman in a way than he was characterized as Superman. Right. And I don't want people to think that I think everything should be like Marvel. Like it has to be kind of light and jokey and everything else. There's room for a dark and serious Superman or dark and serious Batman or or any kind of takes on those characters. But I just think for what Zack Snyder likes to do style wise and his visuals, I mean, even the visuals of the movie, it's just kind of a gray, low contrast kind of mess. You know, there's no really vibrant colors. The suit looks muted. Like, it just doesn't fill you with that energy that you would think of a, a Superman movie would give you. Yeah, and if you think about a character that you really shouldn't, you know, mess around with their more fantastical elements, uh, it would be Superman. I mean, you talk about somebody that shoots laser beams out of their eyes, being steel with their bare hand, has flight, has super breath, has all these powers, and you just can't really do a lot of grounded, realistic stuff with that type of character, nor should you, I think. Yeah, I mean, you could bring in some of the elements outside of that to make it more grounded and realistic, but at the end of the day, like you said, he leaps tall buildings in a single bound. He shoots lasers out of his eyes. He fights aliens from other worlds. He himself is an alien from another world. It's a fantastical story, and it doesn't necessarily have to be grounded and made into something that could necessarily happen in real life. And I think the idea of that, the genesis of that idea is what started sort of the slide for that film, And then it just kind of snowballed from there. One thing I will give it credit for, because it nailed off the bat, it nailed the casting of Henry Cavill as Superman. Yeah, no problems with Henry Cavill whatsoever. I mean, I've always had this little zinger in my head. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I've always thought 
Henry Cavill would have made a great Superman. I sure wish he could have played him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. That's the biggest thing. He was done so wrong in everything that's happened since Man of Steel to now with where we are with, are they going to bring him back for after Black Adam? You know, he had his cameo at the end of that. Is he coming back? James Gunn comes in, says, no, Henry's out. Maybe some of these people are in. It's just a big mess when it comes to that stuff, which we'll talk about later. But yeah, he is a great Superman, but like you said, unfortunately, he never really got to play Superman. Yeah. You see it in small little spurts through uh, some of the movies, you know, through Justice League and some of those things. You see it, but he just never really got to fully embrace the character in a story that was worthy of his Superman at the end of the day. So I remember back in 2013 when we walked out of seeing Man of Steel, we both just kind of sat there and kind of just looked at each other and we were kind of like, what I mean, but I don't know. We immediately left that midnight showing of Man of Steel, booked tickets the next day to see it because we had to kind of almost go back and understand what we just saw. Were we crazy? Because neither one of us come out of it thinking like, I don't think either one of us come from it and was like, oh man, this is amazing. We both come through it and like, huh, kind of scratching our head. Yeah. Kind of in disbelief of what we saw. So like something coming out of that is like the ending of Man of Steel. Something that was very talked about. It's kind of addressed in Batman versus Superman, but another part of the characterization of Superman, just the level of destruction and everything and the, the loss of life and everything. It's a hard pill to swallow in a Superman movie. For, it is. It really is. For a character that's supposed to care about the, the planet and things like that. And you could say, well, it's his first day. You know, I've heard that excuse or it's this or it's that. Or he's not really Superman yet. You know, he's just kind of getting into it. How hard was it to just have him save a school bus like in, you know, the original or a train full of passengers or fix a dam or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how was how hard was it to save anybody except Lois, of course? Right. Yeah. It's like they didn't even attempt to go there. Yeah, it was just kind of like Zack Snyder just smearing a bunch of destruction across the screen, um, you know, with the Zod fight and some of the stuff that happens. And I mean, I think the fight scenes are good. They're a little too excessive, especially that that end scene. It's a little hard to follow that fight in some points, you know, with all the stuff going on. You know, there's that point where it's like you're following someone's fist and like moving through someone's head. And like, it's just, it's a little bit visually hard, but like to follow, but like, Overall, like the visuals and stuff look fine, you know, in terms of like the the CGI and things like that. And it's, it was good to actually see a fight in a Superman movie, like a real knockout, drag out fight in a Superman movie that we hadn't really got ever. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, if you're a fan of the original Christopher Reeve movies and you always kind of, you know, wish there was more action, you know, you get this in spades here. They don't let up on the action in this movie. I'll give it that. Yeah, that was a big criticism coming out of Superman Returns is like, throw a punch, you know. <laughs> but then you go to cut to Man of Steel and it's like, eh, maybe bring it back. Maybe throw less punches <laughs> yeah, kind of thing. So after the divisive Man of Steel, we then get Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, which I would say is even more divisive. Is that fair, Tom? I think you're pretty spot on there, yeah. So talk to me about Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. What doesn't work about that film for you? For me, personally, uh, they just tried to cram too much into one movie. Uh, You're almost trying to be, in an out-about way, the Man of Steel sequel. Uh, You're trying to bring in elements of The Dark Knight Returns. 
Uh, you're trying to bring in elements of the death of Superman. You're trying to set up the Justice League. It's just, it's too much. Uh, you talk about bad mischaracterization or maybe just more bad casting. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor never hit the mark for me in that movie, ever. Yeah, absolutely agree there. Jesse Eisenberg, he's he's not, he's just not it as Luthor for me either. But yeah, I agree with 100% what you said. It's too much too soon. You're trying to be, bring in Batman. Like I said, you're trying to do the Man of Steel sequel. You for some reason feel like you need to bring in not only the Dark Knight Returns storylines or elements from that, but you, you feel like you need to bring in the death of Superman. The death of Superman come at a time when Superman was like, you know, his most popular. He was beloved. He was a hero of the people. Like, and his death meant something. Here, who gives a fuck if this Superman dies? Yeah, I mean. He's done nothing. He yeah. let 5,000 people die in Metropolis or whatever it is. And then two months later, he gets murdered by some other alien creature. Who gives a shit? <laughs> he hadn't earned a respectful death. Yeah, that that Superman nor that movie had earned that storyline at all. So you burn through one of the biggest Superman stories ever. You burn through one of the most beloved comic book or graphic novels of all time. You burn through some of those Batman Returns elements. Not that it wasn't cool to see some of those elements, you know, like, I mean, Ben Affleck is a fantastic Batman as well. Here, another example, casting completely on point. Mm -hmm. Ben Affleck, fantastic. His Batman is probably the most, let's say, let's take out characterization. Let's just talk about look and actions uh, in terms of like fight scenes and things like that. He's the most comic book accurate Batman. That costume is just, yeah, it's the best Batman costume we've ever seen on film. To actually get the gray suit with the big Dark Knight Returns bat, it's fantastic. And the fight scenes he get, also fantastic. But then you take it and you go back and look at characterization. How many people does he kill in that film? Oh, man, I've lost count. <laughs> and to the point of that is, is okay, obviously Batman has killed uh, on film before. Batman 89 kills the Joker, probably a few other guys. He kicks the... Dude that played the Predator, kicks him right down that tower. Right. You know, all that stuff. He's killed in films before. Batman Returns, sticks the bomb on that guy, pushes him down the sewer. Yeah. He gives zero fucks about killing. I get that. <laughs> There's other films that I've let it go, and I would let it go in this film. I don't have a problem necessarily with someone having a take on Batman where he's an older Batman, he's disillusioned, gives no shits anymore, and maybe he does cross that line or he's justified it in his head to cross that line. But where I draw the line is that if you have that Batman, the Batman that kills and doesn't worry about the lives of the people that, you know, the the lives of the people that he's fighting, you got to have a Superman that's the the opposite of that. Yeah, he's got to be the light to that dark to get that balance. Exactly. And then maybe they take a little bit from each other or Batman takes a little bit from that lightness and kind of learns or takes away from Superman you know, the value of human life again or something. But whatever your story is, you can't have this dark Batman who just murders people by slinging cars on top of them with the Batmobile, shooting their, uh, you know, their flamethrower backpacks, just just murdering people left and right. And then have Superman who also is just like, I don't know if I want to be Superman. I really don't care about this place. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. You know, 5,000 people died. Eh. <laughs> Like, you got to have that balance of characterization between Superman and Batman. There has to be some, not only opposition in the film, but there has to be 
that opposing ideologies. That's what we've always seen in the comic books for however many years now, 80 years. Yeah, getting close to 90. Uh, one thing I will give Batman vs. Superman is that there is a director's cut of this movie that I think plays a little bit better than the theatrical cut. Uh, but that's about the only thing I'll give it. <laughs> yeah, I remember, again, when we watched uh, that in theaters, coming out of that, like, what the fuck did I just watch? <laughs> the, the theatrical cut is a, just a, a mess of a film. It is sloppy. You're missing a lot of elements that don't really work anyway, but at least you get the the backstory to them and the setup to them, like the everything that happens in the desert with Superman and, oh, Superman murdered all these people with bullets. Because, you know, that's what Superman does. He shoots oh, yeah. people with bullets. Right. You know? No, he doesn't fry them with his eyes or anything else. All that, it's just a cut up, edited, choppy mess of a theatrical cut. But yeah, I agree with you. I do, the, the director's cut, or the ultimate edition, I think it's called, is way, way, way better than the theatrical cut. True. So, Todd, now you're Warner Brothers and you've had two back-to-back very divisive films that both underperformed at the box office and didn't really quite live up to fan expectations. So, what do you do? You go out and hire David Ayer to direct Suicide Squad and instead of letting him kind of fulfill his vision of the film, you interfere, interfere, interfere until that movie just becomes a total mess. Yeah, and unfortunately, we're getting a trend of Warner Brothers interfering in their director's visions, which is, is sad. Yeah, I don't know how much interference Zack Snyder faced uh, while making Man of Steel or Dawn of Justice, but David Ayer definitely felt that interference coming off the back of those two films because they, they, like I said, underperformed at the box office and Warner Brothers had such a strong reaction. I guess they felt they had to step in and change whatever direction David Ayer was taking the Suicide Squad in. Yeah, it's like Warner Brothers stepped in and looked at, you know, Batman v Superman, Man of Steel, saw how divisive they were, saw the returns on those movies, and kind of saw David Ayer, uh, not maybe in the same direction, but sort of still having a movie with that kind of a tone. And they stepped in and was like, wait a minute, we need to lighten this up a little bit. You know, they get Will Smith kind of known for a comedy action type blend, I would say. And, you know, they just totally fucked his movie over. Yeah, so off of that, what, uh, for you, what doesn't work about Suicide Squad? Uh, how much time we got? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, let's get the elephant out of the room, and that would be Jared Leto's Joker. I personally have never cared for it. I've always heard it was better in in David Ayer's original vision. I want to see that original vision. I'll I'll jump on Team Ayer. I want that cut. I'd like to watch it. But for what we got, I never cared for that version of the Joker. The only standout in this movie for me would be Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn. I think she nails it. Yeah, I think, like you said, Margot Robbie's definitely the standout. Uh, You were talking about Will Smith before. Uh, the big thing with Will Smith to me in some of his roles and, and this for sure is sometimes it's just watching Will Smith on screen, not the character he's playing. And I think this film suffers a lot from that. And maybe that was from the studio interference or maybe it was David Ayer's original vision of how his character played out. But I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say maybe it's more the, the how this was kind of cut up and chopped up that it comes across that way. But I'm with you. I do want to see the Ayer cut someday. I hope, you know, James Gunn is talked about that there's might be, you know, my, we might be seeing that in the future. I'm interested to see it because it can't be much worse than what we got. It's, it's got to be an improvement. Hopefully. I mean, another thing that really falls down for, with this film for me is the villain. It's just the villains are completely generic. There's uh, the other kind of little baddies you get, the little kind of putty monsters they fight in the city. It reminds me of the putties from power Rangers, right? Like just bland, 
villains, very generic. Jared Leto's Joker is just never hit the mark for me either. Maybe it was better than the other cut. We'll never know. That's always a good excuse to have as a director too. When you have one of these films come out and say, well, my cut was better. (laughs) And if we never see it, then he's always right. His cut was better. And we're always left believing, yeah, there's a better cut it out out there. Is it really? We'll never know. That does kind of come true later on though, for Zack Snyder at least. True. But yeah, for Suicide Squad, I think it's probably near the bottom are there worse DCU movies to you, Tyler? Oh, in my opinion, there is. Yeah, I would agree with that. We'll probably get around to talking about those a little bit. But let's move on and uh, talk a l- just a little bit about Wonder Woman. So here we are again. We were talking about before the podcast, Man of Steel, Batman versus Superman, Suicide Squad. Warner Brothers was digging a hole. They were covering themselves in dirt, and they've almost buried themselves. And then you get the bright spot that is Wonder Woman, and they kind of uncovered themselves, and we get an actual... Really, really good DCEU film. Yeah, if you're looking for the crown jewel of this movie series, this is it, folks. This is their top right here. Yeah, I definitely think Wonder Woman is the crown jewel. I think the performances are great. It works as a great origin story for the character. Um, I think the only things that kind of weighed it down a little bit for me was the ending. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, they didn't really like the ending when you get into, your, I guess, your basic generic hero versus the villain fight. It didn't really bother me that much, but I've heard people had a sticking point with that. Yeah, it's not so much, I don't know, I don't know if so much as the, the, the fight as it is where it's located, because it's just one of those, like, here we are in another, like, bombed out area, like like Batman versus Superman, you know, it's uh, or even the end of Man of Steel, it's just a bombed out gray area with nothing going on, it's not visually appealing at all. Like, I don't mind the Ares fight, but it was, like, the weaker part of the film to me, but... Again, Chris Pine, uh, Gail Godot, like all of it, fantastic. Yeah, and if you're looking for one of your better superhero scenes in a movie ever, uh, when she steps up on that battlefield, that's that's amazing stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely hands down the best scene of the film. So just when you think Warner Brothers has dug themselves out of the hole, they go and pick back up the fucking shovel. And then you get Justice League, <sighs> the biggest mess of a film in the entire DCEU. So Zack Snyder is back to kind of fulfill his vision. He was originally planning to do a Justice League Part 1 and a Part 2. What we get here is just just an overall god-awful mess of a film uh, for the theatrical version. Obviously, Zack Snyder come in. There was a tragedy with his family. He had to step away. And so in comes Joss Whedon time. Yeah, you talk about two very different directing styles that don't mix. Yeah, and that's what you get. That's what leads this to being a complete mess. But the thing that I never understood about Justice League is it, it was originally sold as as Joss Whedon was just kind of coming in to punch it up and just kind of finish the film out and kind of finish Zack's vision. But he comes in and reshoots a bunch of stuff and adds just a bunch of jokes and additional scenes that just don't work. Yeah, they're cringy. Add, yeah, exactly. Just adds a bunch of shit that doesn't work. He just... They don't finish out the film in any kind of meaningful way. They just take and just they strip it for parts, which I understand it wasn't a, com- a commercially viable and releasable film in Zach's four hour imagined cut of it. Right. But like you bring Joss Whedon in and he, he adds extra scenes to that. That really doesn't make any sense in the context of what you were going for. And then adds just a bunch of quips and jokes. Yeah, I mean, that one in particular where Batman's laying on the ground, I forget the particular line, but it's something along the lines of, yeah, I'm hurt or something like that. God awful. 
Yeah, you get a lot of cringe type lines all throughout the film like that. And you get Joss Whedon coming in and changing a lot of things, color palette, all, all that kind of stuff. And it just leads to a tonally inconsistent mess. And then we get our years long, I think, at, at, at a certain point campaign for hashtag release the Snyder Cut. So many circumstances all led to the release of the Snyder Cut. But uh, at the end of the day, what did you think about the Snyder Cut compared to the theatrical version of Justice League, Todd? Uh, at the end of the day, after all we've been through with Zack Snyder as a director of these films, uh, this is a far superior cut. Even at four hours long, it was uh, definitely a pleasure to sit through this than theatrical cut any day. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I would really have loved to have seen his part two of this. Uh, you know, obviously we're not going to get it now. I kind of, in a way, hold out a hope that maybe they'll do it maybe as possibly a DC animated movie. I think that would be cool. Uh, not as good as live action would be, obviously, but I would like to maybe possibly see it finished up that way at some point. Yeah, I think a lot of circumstances led up to us actually getting the Snyder Cut. And for me, I think it is so much better than what we got in the theatrical cut of Justice League. And I think the Snyder Cut actually addressed some of the criticisms uh, people had about some of the previous Zack Snyder films. Namely, it had a much lighter tone, don't you think? I think so, yeah. Another thing the Snyder Cut fixes that we forgot to mention about the theatrical cut of Justice League is Superman's god-awful upper lip, Todd. Yeah, you would think in a day and age where we can like CGI entire worlds and universes, it wouldn't be so hard to get mustache off a guy's fucking face. The Snyder Cut also fixed Steppenwolf, making him a lot more badass. It gave Cyborg a character arc and did justice really to Superman. Yeah, I think in the Snyder Cut, we finally got a more consistent arc for Superman because in the theatrical cut, when he's brought back, he's sort of brought back as a Whedon-esque version of Superman, more of the more lighthearted type Superman, which really didn't fit the tone of what Zack had started. So it was more consistent throughout, I thought, in the Snyder Cut. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think we can both agree that the Snyder Cut is also the far superior cut over what we get in the theatrical cut of Justice League. Most definitely. So skipping from Justice League all the way to uh, the Snyder Cut, we actually skipped about four films in between. We missed out on Aquaman, Shazam, Birds of Prey, and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn, and your favorite DCEU film, Wonder Woman 1984. Oh, God. So let's just go back and quickly hit on some of these. How do you feel about Aquaman today? I think Aquaman still works for me. It's just a... It's just a decent little popcorn flick type movie. It's got great visuals. Uh, I like the actor that played Black Manna. I like the look of Black Manna. Uh, nobody really has a bad look in this movie. Uh, it's just a decent, nice little DCEU flick. Yeah, Aquaman isn't the most complex film, but I mean, it is visually stunning and it was just a good solo outing for Aquaman. Kind of the same thing you get in Shazam. I would agree. Uh, Shazam, definitely probably the lightest this cinematic universe ever got. And it's just along the same lines as you said. It's just a decent, nice little DCEU flick. Yeah, so you get Aquaman, Shazam, you kind of get the lighter tone. You get some great visuals. I mean, really good, kind of fun, energetic films. And then you get into something like Birds of Prey, Todd. So tell me about what your thoughts were when you saw Birds of Prey. Uh, I didn't really care for it. Uh, I've watched it once. I've not revisited it. Uh, I think Margot Robbie still brings a lot to this role as Harley Quinn. She's still the standout here as she was in Suicide Squad. But for me personally, everything else about the rest of this movie is just kind of forgettable. 
Yeah, the word forgettable pretty much sums up Birds of Prey for me. It's not a bad film. It lives somewhere between subpar to mediocre at best. Margot Robbie is obviously the standout, and she's kind of one of the brightest spots of the DCEU overall. But then we got your favorite Wonder Woman 1984, Todd. I know you got some really strong takes on Wonder Woman 1984, so what are they? Uh, Wonder Woman 1984, to me, is the worst pile of stink that the DCEU ever churned out. Uh, do I sound toxic here, folks? <laughs> Just a touch. Uh, I, I've only watched this movie one time, and that was when it first debuted on what was then HBO Max because COVID. So where do I start with this one? I mean, you've got your big plot device as a wishing stone. Yeah, Pedro Pascal, he comes in and he wishes for more wishes. Yeah, wishes for more wishes. Uh, you got Steve Trevor brought back, uh, instead of bringing him back just as a wish, you know, wishing him back to life, uh, he has to come back in another guy's body, which him and Gal Gadot proceed to use for sex. Yeah, it just makes it weird, doesn't just it? Just makes it really weird and very creepy. So I guess my biggest gripe for this whole movie is the fact that the cheetah gets outshined in this movie by Maxwell Lord. Nothing gets Maxwell Lord, the character, or Pedro Pascal's portrayal of him, it's just... You don't do that to Wonder Woman's main villain. It's like the equivalent of outshining the Joker in a movie or outshining Lex Luthor in a movie. Yeah, the entire Cheetah storyline in the film is just cringe to me, and that fight with her and Cheetah at the end is just nothing. Yeah, and I just realized when we was talking, she's another one of those characters that falls into that Edward Nigma type role, like Jamie Foxx's Electro in Amazing Spider-Man 2. She's like that bespeckled, demure, uh, looks up to our main character, you know, that type deal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For me personally, you book in this whole entire cinematic universe with Wonder Woman. Its highest peak is Wonder Woman, and its lowest point is Wonder Woman 1984. And you got everything else in the middle. Yeah, Todd, I 100% agree with your Wonder Woman take. I don't really think there's anything else I can add. So let's uh, let's move on and talk about uh, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. For me, this was a film that kind of got criminally overlooked in theaters. It kind of come out with those batch of films that got released during COVID. So it really suffered at the box office. But I think it's a great film overall, Todd. What do you think? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, this is definitely James Gunn right in his wheelhouse. You know, you give him these obscure uh, B, C, and D list type characters and he can just make gold with them. Yeah, you get a good rated R James Gunn Suicide Squad film that brings back Margot Robbie, Joel Kinnaman. You also get a great performance by Idris Elba. John Cena's Peacemaker had a great spinoff show on Max. Peacemaker series was was great, in my opinion. Overall, very solid film. Uh, You think we're kind of getting back on track, and then we get into Black Adam. Mm. So talk to me about Black Adam, Todd. Do you just love it? I have saw it once, uh, not in person at the movies, though. I just saw it on streaming. Uh, it's just kind of there. And I think, it, it, in my personal opinion, I had really started checking out by now. <laughs> and that's on me, folks. But uh, it's just, it's not awful. It's not terrible. It's just kind of, I'd say, borderline decent at best. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how in sync we are sometimes on these. Because you, you, you said exactly what I was about to say in terms of at this point in the DCU, I, I'm, I just checked out. I checked out for Black Adam. I checked out for Shazam, uh, Fury of the Gods. I checked out so hard for Shazam, Fury of the Gods. In fact, I have never even watched it. I'm with you there. I, I've not watched that movie either. I went from Black Adam to The Flash. Listen, at the end of the day, Black Adam was just a vanity project for The Rock. Nothing more. It's a mediocre 
subpar type movie. It's not great. It's not bad. It's just another one of those kind of nothing films that just didn't really move the needle for the DCEU and then kind of brought back Henry Cavill just to kind of, I think, boost the box office numbers a little bit and kind of tease Superman versus Black Adam, which now we know it's never going to happen. Yeah, and it, maybe it's just me, but I always thought it was a little bit presumptuous of The Rock to kind of, he gave me that vibe that he was going to be like a linchpin of this series for a while, and he was going to be like a major player throughout a lot of these movies, and boy, that age like milk, didn't it? Yeah, that really didn't pan out for The Rock, and like we said, we couldn't really even be bothered at this point because we're so checked out to even watch Shazam, Fury of the Gods, so we really can't say anything positive or negative about that film. But I have uh, quite a bit to say negative about The Flash if you watched some of our uh, previous Tau Capes episodes. Todd, can you sum up The Flash a little bit for us? Uh, if you enjoyed Michael Keaton as Batman back in the day, uh, that's all this movie really has to offer is a chance to see him in the role one more time. Other than that, it's not worth an effort to watch it. Yeah, The Flash is a bad film and Michael Keaton's Batman is the only redeeming part of the film. We've talked a lot about The Flash on the podcast before. We actually have a full review and breakdown of the film. So if you're interested to hear more of our take on The Flash, go ahead and go back and check that out. So, Todd, I think we can both agree there were a lot of things that led to the downfall of the DCEU. Chief among them, we talked about poor characterization right off the bat, poor characterization for Superman, for Batman. You had a standout, really well done Wonder Woman, but when you get two of the Trinity wrong, you're already starting off on the wrong foot. Exactly. Studio interference was obviously a contributing factor. We don't know to what extent Warner Brothers did or didn't interfere with all the films we talked about today. We do know for sure in the cases of Justice League and the Suicide Squad that Warner Brothers interfered heavily in both of those productions, which led to both of those films being complete messes. Yeah, they definitely suffered for it. Another aspect we didn't really get too much in, but I think is a big contributing factor, is the lack of consistency and leadership at Warner Brothers. How many times their leadership has rolled over from the top down, and then the fact that Warner Brothers was actually sold to Discovery and now is Warner Brothers Discovery. I think that obviously had a major impact on some of these productions at different times. Yeah, it had to. And another major point we haven't really touched on is the DCEU never really had a Kevin Feige to steer the ship. Yeah, they just never really had that true uh, North Star to keep all this stuff on track. It, it would have definitely helped. I mean, Feige is a major contributor to all the Marvel projects, and it's something DC has lacked to this point and something I hope they can correct going forward. Yeah, with James Gunn and Peter Safran coming on board, I think we both hope that the future of the new DCU is much brighter than it ever was for the DCEU. Exactly. All right, Todd, before we get out of here, how will you be killing time until our next episode? I am actually, uh, at the time of this recording, uh, getting ready to leave on a much-deserved vacation, I believe. Uh, I'll try to keep up with some stuff on streaming, some social media while I'm gone, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. So yeah, since we're off next week and since you'll be out frolicking in the sun, I'll be here working away trying to plan out future episodes of our show. Seems real fair, doesn't it? Fair? No. Am I still going to do it? Yes. So Todd, tell everyone how they can find us and stay up to date with us on social media. We are at Tau Capes on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Tau Capes Podcast on Facebook. You can also email us at TauCapesPod at gmail.com. Also, if you're so obliged, leaving us a five-star review on your podcast app of choice really helps the show. Be on the lookout for this week's Popcorn Mumbles, where we'll be talking about the 1993 film Batman Mask of the Phantasm. 
Since Todd thinks he's worked hard enough to earn a vacation, Towel Capes will return Monday, October 2nd. We want to thank you so much for listening. Until next time, bye, guys. See you guys.